Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. We've been through a tough couple of years. What the hell happened? Pressures are real. The fuel price increases are real. Women are so deeply aggrieved and angry. You have to think about this as a father first. And if that doesn't make you angry, you are not paying attention. It is his way or the highway. I know our country can do better. He was an intimidating bully. A menacing, controlling wallpaper. Such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. We still have so much work to do. Call the election. Call it now. What am I doing right now? Let the people of Australia decide. Jenny has a way of clarifying this. Let's make some noise, Australia! Hello and welcome to Broad Talk. And for those of you returning for episode four, thank you for rejoining us. Well, gosh, it's uh, this election campaign rolls on. It's uh, been as busy as ever, and I'm as grumpy as ever. I know that's not a really nice way to start a podcast, but look, we've got a fantastic lineup of, of three um, guest commentators this week who are going to take us in all sorts of different directions. We've got Jenna Price, we've got Helen Daly Fisher, and we have got Chris Wallace. Now, I'll introduce each of them uh, one by one, but before I do, I just want to remind you and thank you for listening. If you've downloaded Broad Talk, please. Remember to send it on, review it, rate it, all that kind of stuff, which I really hate talking about. But apparently we really need it to move the old broad up the queue. And I am excited to share with you that we are going to have a web page coming very soon. Um, Martin just doesn't get any sleep anymore, which is um, a bit sad, but he's doing a beautiful job. And we also have a new email address. You can write to us at hello 
at broadtalk.net. Hello at broadtalk.net. So please do, because people have been uh, getting in contact with me, many of you, and I really appreciate it, um, but coming through all sorts of different channels. So if you'd like to email us, do, or you can get us on Insta at broadtalkers, on Facebook at broadtalk. You can find me on Twitter at Virginia underscore house or at Talk Broad, both Martin and I are there as well. And of course, you can always um, send us all sorts of messages. And to those who have sent some pretty funny reviews or messages to us about uh, listening to Broad Talk, um, what was one of it, Martin? Through a, a tepid fog of Pinot Noir. I liked that. That's fine. That's good. Many of you seem to listen to us as, you, as you're walking or gardening or at home but uh, or driving, but. Um, through the Pinot Noir tepid fog, that, that's fine too. Love it. Okay, so this week, let me first introduce you to Dr. Jenna Price. Now, Jenna is an Australian journalist and an academic. She would be well known to many of you as a columnist with the Sydney Morning Herald and the Canberra Times. She's also a visiting fellow at the Australian National University. And Jenna's one of the founders of the online feminist movement, Destroy the Joint. Hi, Jenna. And uh, when you looked on this morning, just a moment ago, you looked harried. I think that's the word. How's your week been? Um, well, we've got an election. I'm trying to do a lot of <laughs> really? writing. I've got lots of family responsibilities, including two grandchildren. So I'm just doing the thing that I've been doing for 40 years, which is juggling life and work and home and family and responsibilities and, uh, you know, trying to put in a bit of fun and quite a bit of Pinot Noir in there. <laughs> We all need a bit of that. I've got to say, when I read your columns, I often think, and and you are quite prolific, I often think, I don't know how you do it. But you do, and you keep popping up, and thank goodness for that. We're all um, very, very glad that you do. Now, another person who is incredibly prolific, Dr Chris Wallace. Chris is a writer, historian, former press gallery journalist, and she's Associate Professor at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. Yay! Uh, Chris is, uh, well, she's prolific in her output. She wrote the first biography of Jermaine Greer, Untamed Shrew, uh, which was the first I read on, on Greer. She's written a number of books and, in fact, her most recent one, How to Win an Election, is the secret Bible of current election campaign directors. Or if it isn't, it jolly well should be because it is terrific. Chris, of course, is a, a a great observer, an astute observer, I should say, of the election process. Chris, welcome. How has your week been? Virginia, fabulous. Ever closer to election day. Cannot wait <laughs> to find out the result. It's almost too much the wait. You you love this time, don't you? Whereas I get very anxious. You're you're like a kid waiting for Father Christmas. Well, we are so lucky to live in a democracy and uh, I think most Australians really appreciate it. The democracy sausage kind of <laughs> symbolises the excitement, the sizzle, you know, the protein, the carbohydrate, <laughs> the butter. Um, look, it's a great time and thank God we get to vote every three years. Mm. And I'm really glad we don't have four or five-year fixed terms. Three years is great. Really? Yes, because if you get a really bad government and they're in for five years, mm. it can just seem interminable. I'm, I look at what's going on in Britain with the Johnson government and mm. think, my mm. God, how dismal would it be to be British and have to put up with that poor quality government for five years stretches before you've got a chance to express an opinion and maybe kick them out? So, look, I know you love this period, um, but I, I, as I said, uh, I, I get very anxious around elections. You seem to um, thrive on it. You, you're not feeling an 
a little modicum of anxiety at the moment? I do feel this is a major pivot point for the, the, the nation. Voters are either going to choose to keep walking down the same fairly dismal track or they're going to pivot to a much more contemporary and long-term focused kind of government and set of policies. So I'm, I'm putting faith in my fellow countrymen and women to vote thoughtfully and, and really think beyond today, tomorrow and next week and really make a good choice. Let's not go into it too deeply now, but I just think it's a really big moment in Australian national history. And I cannot wait to find out the result because we live in a democracy. It's not predetermined happily. So, you know, it is a bit like Christmas. You don't know what you're getting until the day comes. Okay, I think I'm pretty confident that today uh, the Prime Minister said we were living in a public autocracy. Did you see that story? A public autocracy. Yeah, that's right. Where, I'm um, not even going to comment on that. No. Apparently um, voters are not keen on anything like, oh, voters shouldn't be keen on this idea of a federal integrity commission. That's just wow. calling for heads to roll. Yes. Now, before we even get into integrity, I, I want to bring in our third guest, uh, speaking of integrity, Helen Dallifisher. Now, Helen is someone who, who I've admired for a long, long time and, in fact, has uh, featured on Broad Talk previously in one of our series uh, our series on, on leadership. Helen is the convener of the Equality Rights Alliance based in Canberra and ERA is Australia's largest network of organisations advocating for women's equality and leadership. And before she took on that role, Helen trained in law. She's worked in the community legal sector where she specialised in things such as disability discrimination. And uh, Helen is an absolute gem and a very, very, very valuable member of the Women's Network. So, Helen, welcome. And how's your week been? Oh, look, I think... um I'm in a sort of disassociate state at the moment where I'm gardening and as an attempt to sort of not have to think too much about it. Um, but I think that there's a really odd mood at the moment um, that you know, there's a sense of urgency, there's a sense that something needs to be done and there's not necessarily a sense that this particular process is going to get us to the right solution. So, yeah, rushing about um, trying to make sense of what's going on, I think. Before we get too deep into the election and the issues um, around that, Helen, just share with us a little bit how ERA works and what it does because I think probably a lot of us aren't really clear on how it works such that the government reaches out to get information from a a variety of women's networks and that then filters through the Office for Women and eventually to the Minister for Women herself. What's your role in that and how does it work? ERA is one of six national women's alliances. So it's the, we're the Equality Rights Alliance. Um, and the other alliances either deal with specific population groups or specific issues that relate to the lives of women. So there's an alliance um, that deals with violence against women and then there's ERA dealing with economic security and leadership. And then the other alliances all deal with groups such as rural women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, migrant and refugee women and so on. And we're all funded um, through the Department um, of Prime Minister and Cabinet's Office for Women. That contract allows us to um, perform this sort of um, conduit role between government and women living their lives in Australia. So the idea is that we go out there and we talk to women um, from all walks of life, as many diverse lives represented in our membership as we can. We then take the information that we get from those women and particularly the priorities that they tell us about what matters in their lives. And we take that to government. And that's either in the a process of saying, look, government, you really need to be talking 
talking about this issue, what are you doing in this area? Um, or saying, um, look, you're looking at this area, this is our opinion on that, um, drawn on what we've been um, hearing from the women we talk to. So it's it's a, a, a conduit role, as I said, where um, we play a part in sort of reaching out um, on behalf of government, but slightly independent from government, so that we're in a, a position where people can talk to us very frankly um, about what's happening in their lives. Um, and try to bring a bit of a gender lens to the general policy development process because in Australia, we don't have a good gender lens on our policy development, um, particularly at federal level. We don't have a good gender lens on our budget. Um, and so part of the work that we do is trying to bring that voice and that particular perspective into what government does. Um, I, I might just share with people too that uh, I have very strong memories of uh, being with Helen the day before the March for Justice, which of course was 15th of March in 2021, and and I, being one of the speakers in Canberra, I was involved in a meeting of all the um, the speakers the day before, and Helen and I and Janine Hendry were standing <laughs> out in the car park when that message came through from the Prime Minister's office that uh he wasn't going to come out, but he wanted delegation or Janine to go and see him. And we had this furious discussion about should she, shouldn't she. And I, I just remember, I will never forget that actually, because I had a very strong view on it and others had different views. But what fascinated me about that was how much it became a discussion for everyone. It was taken back to the group, it was put out in social media, and thousands upon thousands were asked to give their view on what should happen and whether or not Janine would go to, be, to, to meet with him. And I, I found that a really fascinating process. It was uh, quite an exciting thing. Yeah, that was a, a glorious moment of sort of hijacking the, the the power play that was happening there where someone was trying to assert um, control over the conditions that that discussion would have. Um, and instead of playing the game, Janine did this wonderful thing where she reached out and said, let's do feminist leadership. Let's say, you know, let's um, find out what everybody thinks and then bring that together. Um, and it was, that's a quite an ERA moment. Um, that's the sort of model that we use when we're doing decision making. So it's about how do you um, undermine that very patriarchal structure that you have around power? Um, how do you make decisions differently in a way that actually reflects the, yeah. the needs? Of well, it was a fascinating moment. It was fascinating to watch, and and as it turned out, it was it was a good com- outcome. It was a it was the right decision that the group took. Now, but you mentioned gender lens, so let's get straight into it. This election, I've just written a column um, for the Mandarin about uh, where are the women and where are the women's issues in this election. What do you all feel? Um, I, I want to get a sense of your pulse, how, how, what, what is the, the feeling you have at the moment about uh, how the election is going and the the role or presence of women's policy in what we're hearing about. Now, Jenna, let, let's start that with you. What do you think? Well, I'm surprised that we don't have the same demonstrations in the street that we had in March 2021. I thought that there would be much more rage pouring onto the streets. But I think there's a lot of general, um, you know, just interpersonal rage. Women, you know, I speak to lots of women and they go, oh, my God, this is terrible. What can we do about it? And I say, well, vote differently to how you voted last time. Um, So I think the anger is not so much collective. We had a lot of collective rage. Now it's just personal enragement. And I think that is going to um, really assert itself on on the day of our election where we'll see the engagement in that way. So I think that 
people have decided that they can't be out on the streets marching anymore. They have to act differently in the lead up to this election. Just, just to double back a little bit there, when you say you expected to see more people out, do you mean you expected women to be a lot more vocal I during did. this? Campaign? I expected there would be a lot more, um, a, a lot more public anger. About what? Coming back to violence against women and violence against women, early childhood care and education, um, aged care, um, health. I mean, these are issues. These issues are all coming up constantly, mm. but there's not that same feeling of fury that there was uh, 15 months ago. And I'm not entirely sure why that is, except that I think people have already decided what they're going to do about it. So mm. they had the rage when there was still 18 months 18 months out from the election. Now they've internalised that. Th- they've already thought about how they're going to act. In some respects, a lot of women I know who've never been involved in any campaigning um, have now lined up between the, behind the so-called teal candidates, the majority of whom are women. So that's really interesting to me. I, I'm still not sure why. We had to wait for teal candidates for women to be truly engaged with politics. Maybe um, actually I take that back. I think that a lot of women are very put off by the way party parties mm, behave. Mm. Um, and they can and see think, they can see independence, uh, whether they're teal or whoever they are, as being yeah. non-aligned with that, that party, um, but, well, and, potentially party corruption. Mm. And I think that's partly true for women who I know um, have voted Liberal in the past, there is no way for them to change the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party, as it stands today, is not a um, party that women can ever really fully participate in. So the teal candidates are a kind of um, a path to be involved and engaged without having to commit themselves to a party, which really doesn't want women to be involved. Chris, what what's your taking of the pulse telling you at the moment, and and what do you think about those uh, the big issues for women and the lack of discussion around those? I think it's easy to become you know, and this sounds kind of odd, but a bit blind to the extent that women are already centrally involved. So, for example, if you look at the Labor campaign, Penny Wong is arguably the most prominent spokesperson for Labor after the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese. And we just kind of take that for granted now as we do the remarkable achievement by Labor of of getting 50-50 shares in their federal parliamentary representation, which was hard won, slogged over for decades, achieved, and we just all kind of take it for granted. It's huge. Um, So I think the, the, the Teal candidates are a really interesting phenomenon, and I think Jenna is right that institutionally the Liberal Party is hostile to women, it is not permeable by women, only around one quarter of their own party room in Canberra are women. Uh, The women that are prominent currently in coalition ranks federally, especially the front benches, are ones who are doing the work of the patriarchy and spouting really negative lines and advocating regressive policies for women. So there are women involved, they're just not acting in the overall interests of women. Um, but I think the 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 teal independents are a fascinating phenomenon. They're not all women, by the way. Uh, Alex Dyson, who's standing in Wannon, is not a woman. Um, but they but they are nearly all women, and that is very very striking. And to the extent that they are activating the electorate, 
uh, in with a chance of actually getting the balance of power is a really, really, really big deal. Mm. And I think if Susan Ryan was alive, she'd be absolutely fascinated that women were structurally innovating in a way in creating this new teal space. You know, we didn't even have a word for it three months ago. Uh, We were calling them the Mm. voices candidates or the voices fellow travelling candidates. I think the teal tag is really useful. Uh, It's a very dramatic development and it is so fascinating to see uh, the Liberal and National parties simply not understanding what is going on. Uh, the teal, those teal candidates are eating the coalition's lunch, and we're going to see the proof of the pudding on on election day. Maybe they won't get heaps of seats. I think they'll at least get a couple, or maybe even a few. Uh, there are a few already there, but it's a really big deal on the conservative side of politics that those centrist women have popped up and may, in fact, seize the balance of power. Let's just oh, consider the teals for a moment, though. Whilst it it, it is clear that they are getting a uh, huge response from their local community and uh, volunteers, I'm hearing of people volunteering, including um, people close to me who have never been political before and I have been really shocked that they are literally out on the streets and doing door knocking and I would never have imagined they'd do such a thing. Um, they're that motivated. But should should they not get up the teals? Um, we're all very close to it and we watch daily and, and take in the details. But from a general public that doesn't do that and that is only just sort of watching the headlines, if, for example, we've got, say, I think it's seven or eight really good um, women independents running at the moment and very few of them get up. Will that then have a very depressed or depressing effect, do you think, on the electorate? People are going to say, oh, look, all those women tried, it didn't work, therefore it doesn't work. Well, if, if that's the case, then the teals will die a death very quickly. But I suspect it's it's going to depend very much on who gets elected. These these candidates and their supporters are very motivated to get action on a specific group of issues. Uh, number one, climate policy. Number two, a federal integrity commission. Number three, gender equity policies that actually impact. Um, so I think if if Labor wins, I expect the Teal movement to dissipate somewhat. But by God, if the coalition gets re-elected, I think you'll see the gas burner really go up under the teal movement because essentially it's, it's the moderate wing of the Liberal Party that's decamped to the crossbench. Uh, nearly all women, it's because of the misogyny within the coalition. If they don't work that out and do something about it, they're just going to shrink to a tiny shriveled up testicle that doesn't do anything much anymore. <laughs> um, the coalition is either going to keep walking down an ever narrower, more masculinist track or it's going to wake up to itself, institutionally establish a different culture, invite the, the centrists back in, not just women but principally women who are, feel really excluded or not. You know, this is the great thing about politics. It's dynamic. It's not static. There are very few, you know, one-way trajectories in politics. That's one of the reasons it's so interesting. Um, but it is thrilling to see so many more people than usual involved in a campaign. Uh, it's it's true on both sides of politics that both both sides of politics have become a bit atherosclerotic in terms of their party practices and cultures. And you know, I, I've made a close study of the Indies for the last couple of years on the on the side because I'm fascinated 
at the way they're bringing back the normal old-fashioned community campaigning techniques that the Labor Party and the Liberal Party used to do back in the day uh, that have been largely lost from the big parties' cultures as they've become very top-down. So we're seeing a fascinating political culture experiment in action and I think it's a damn good thing. Fascinating to watch. Helen, just before we move on, you wanted to add something there? Yeah, I'm just... speculating to myself whether we're seeing a point in time or whether we're seeing a paradigm shift. Um, And I think that, Chris, you were just um, pointing to that um, in terms of the way the the dominant parties have become ossified. Um, And also the way those dominant parties are struggling with new forms of communication and a new environment that they're operating in, which is changing very rapidly. And they're looking for quick fix solutions to that. Um, You know, the, the meme war that we're seeing going on at the moment um the deeply pointless meme war that you know is taking up far too much time and energy as far as i'm concerned um but which nevertheless but seems that's to because be... you're old, that's because you're over 40 <laughs> i'm old you say that. <laughs> you're right no, you're seriously totally. it's, yeah. it's very generational and memes are brilliant they they communicate instantly what words would take hundreds of words to do so yeah, that's a that's very true. generational comment i'm not blaming you for being old i'm probably older but we have to be able to put our ourselves in the shoes of younger people and, and kind of get it. I mean, at the last election, some of those liberal memes were really decisive, uh, the way they were pushed out and influenced Can I just get you to explain, Helen, to someone who, who hasn't been watching the memes, what is the meme war? Yeah, so what we're seeing is, um, you know, it's a series of very quick, easy to make, um, fast turnover images usually, um, that encapsulate, um, a, a talking point. Um, and they are, they're pop culture references primarily. Um, they're intended to have a, an element of humor to them. And I think the thing that's interesting about them, they're being pushed out on, um, various platforms of social media. But the thing that's interesting about them is that what they're pushing is the dominant themes that are the attack themes. So what I'm seeing in the memes is I'm seeing um, the, the attacks on Anthony Albanese, the attacks on Scott Morrison, the, the very personal stuff, and I'm seeing the stuff that's very much about um, very high-level, these people are no good type messaging, um, as opposed to memes about housing policy or memes about you know, um, cost of living or you know the, the, the massive amount of information that's being conveyed in the memes doesn't seem to me to be really hitting the mark. Um, If you were going to use memes really effectively, you'd use them to get complicated issues across quite simply, um, or at least to get the bare bones of them. Um, But we're not looking at a campaign, I think, that's particularly interested in the details of policy. I think we're looking at a campaign that's being dominated by very primary colours, very block capitals largely done in crayon, um, that feel to me like um, an attempt to avoid making any missteps by giving too much away in terms of or giving too much to the populations. And that, that's interesting in terms of the teals uh, because the teals are operating locally. They're operating as people rather than as parties. And so they are giving. And so I think we're, we're probably seeing a bit of a paradigm shift here um, in terms of the way people are operating. Oh, Helen, I really have to disagree with you about memes. They are salty, they're succinct, they're simple, and they're kind of um, they're summarising what people feel about character, which I think is really important in this election. You've got a person who's never able to keep their promises and deceives and delays and denies, and then you've got someone, I mean, I'm assuming, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that 
Albo will be a more sincere character. And I think that's the whole thing with the memes. And that's why we've got, you know, a lot of questions about um, Scott Morrison's fake chicken curry. That chicken did not look cooked to me. <laughs> oh, Jenna. Now, you, you've actually raised something really important, the issue of character. I thought we'd, we'd move away from this, but I think we're going to have to come back to it. But we're just going to take a break for a moment and uh, return and then let's get stuck into personalities and character with you in a minute. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Well, we were just talking about memes, of course, and Jenna raised the issue of character and how important that is to the election. Now, I've got to say I feel quite torn about this. I've been infuriated. The first week was all about the character of Albo and the character of the Prime Minister, and I thought, is this the best we can do? Jenna, do you really think that this is an election about character and that that, that's okay? Well, I would always love elections to be solely about policy, but like everyone else in the universe, I like the glittery, shiny things and the personalities and the relationships. I I think it's really important for us to recognise that no matter what good policy we have, it's always carried out by people and we have to want to know and trust those people. And I think we know Scott Morrison and we no longer trust him, if anyone ever did in the first place. Hmm. You know, remember this is the bloke who put his arms around Malcolm Turnbull and said, that's my Prime Minister, just a moment before sticking the knife between the ribs. So I think um, the kind of character that people are supports the kind of policy they're able to carry out. So if you've got conviction, if you are honest, if you are sincere, then those things will make people feel that you are conducting the application of policy in the best way possible. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because it echoes to me of a very American model where we have a president and people vote very much on do I like that president, do I trust that president. I thought that in Australia, we are a lot more party focused. Uh, and that's why, um, you know, a party's always, a, 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 sorry, a premier or a, a prime minister is always surrounded by their leadership team and, and we have to focus on all of them. Helen, what do you think? Well, I, I think that character in this election is actually standing in for a deeper 
discussion. I think that people are, I think that they're standing in for a values-based discussion. And I think that's why the issue of corruption commissions um, is coming up as such a, you know, a, a volatile area. Because I think that when people are talking about the characters of individuals, they're, what they're saying about the character of those individuals is actually reflecting their views about culture more generally in Parliament around the culture within the parties themselves. And I think that what we're seeing is a reflection of real concern about um, a system that feels a bit corrupt, you know, maybe a bit more than a bit corrupt. Um, and I think that when you know, people talk about whether you can trust Albo, whether you can trust Scott Morrison, you know, whether they um, have decent characters, I think that's standing in for that conversation. Mm. Chris, what do you think? It's it's very interesting, the, the, the quality of the teal candidates in that, you know, let's let's take a concrete example. Let's look at Kuyong, right? On the one hand, you've got Josh Frydenberg, who's the quintessential coalition political animal, uh, very well educated, uh, experienced in, in terms of professional politics and political craft, struggling to see off a first-time challenger who is a paediatric neurologist. Now, how permeable are the major parties to that kind of talent? A political hardened political pro might say, "Well, why would you want to waste a paediatric neurologist in <laughs> Parliament?" But the point is, we need a whole lot of different kinds of people in Parliament. And to the extent that 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 woman, Dr. Monique Ryan, was prepared to put her side of career uh, because, in the national interest, she thinks it's so important to win the seat of Kuyong and to take it away from Josh Frydenberg, is a very big statement about values a very big statement about commitment and a fascinating reflection on just how the major parties really need to rethink the entry routes into politics via them uh, lest they get uh, eaten around the edges by independence in a, in a much deeper sense because they are so much more permeable to really good candidates. Uh, another example in McKellar, not getting a huge amount of attention around the country but getting a lot in Sydney, Dr Sophie Scamps. I mean. Wow, what a candidate. Um, and it's fascinating that the Teals are, are producing this kind of political talent. They are all people of objectively excellent character. And I'm fascinated, again, coming back to Kuyong, um, it doesn't seem to have occurred to someone like Josh Frydenberg, hardened political operator that he is, that he simply might get more support from his electors if he behaved better. <laughs> and espouse better values. You know, it, it literally does not seem to have occurred to these people that that actually might be a way to win more support from their own electorate. Isn't it interesting, though, coming back to the issue of character, um, the, the, there's been quite a bit of media coverage of that massive big billboard that's gone up in Kuyong in, in Melbourne with his face on it, which has no logo of the Liberal Party and therefore no reference to the Prime Minister. You're referring um, to the Josh Keeper sign. Yeah. It just says <laughs> keep Josh, Josh. Yeah, keep Josh. But and it's interesting because at the same time um, his opponent in, in the so-called Teal, uh, Monique Ryan, a lot of her core flutes have been taken down. Uh, and it's interesting also that that billboard was was initially considered illegal and then suddenly it got a, a development application passed at the 11th hour, so it was allowed to stay. But the point that the... the that is interesting is that he has seems to have disassociated himself or disconnected himself from the prime minister. Is that is is that about character as well? Well, I think he's detached himself from his party, hasn't he? That's how on the nose and how struggling he is in Kuyong. I think interestingly, if you look at the neighbouring electorate of Higgins, uh, which Dr. Katie Allen 
has for the coalition for the Liberal Party. And of course, a storied seat uh, like Kuyong. Higgins is the former seat of Treasurer Peter Costello. So Katie Allen actually said on the record this week that she's very popular in her electorate. It's just that Scott Morrison is a bit whiffy with her voters. <laughs> so we, everybody knows from the polling that Scott Morrison is unpopular. In fact, we know it must be showing up in the LNP's own polling too yeah. because Scott Morrison actually said the other day yes. during a presser, you might yes. not like me but yes. dot, dot, dot. So if it's if it's so prominent in their polling that the Prime Minister himself has to reference it in order to try and neutralise it, then Scott Morrison, his character, his standing, uh, his Prime Ministership is definitely a big lead weight around every Liberal candidate's leg. I was fascinated to hear him say that, if you don't like me. It's the first time I've heard a Prime Minister say that during an election campaign. But, yes, my thoughts were exactly as you just outlined it, that they must know that he's he's up against it. During uh, the year or last year, I was interviewing um, Julia Banks uh, also for Broad Talk and she made the point that uh, her response to uh, the Prime Minister, um, Scott Morrison, was a visceral one. That she she actually her whole body sort of responded that that she almost felt triggered by seeing him or hearing hearing him, and I have had so many women say to me since then that they feel that too. Um, is that is that playing a part here, Helen? Yeah, look, I, no, I think that that's, that's something we're hearing very um, consistently from anybody involved, either um, in the parliamentary process or even just employed in parliament. We're hearing um, words relating to trauma. Uh, you know, we're hearing narratives around people having come away from their role um, with physical symptoms, with you know, from having worked in an environment that is so toxic. And I mean, yeah, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner went in there and produced the raised the um, standard report. Um, and you know, we do have commitments to um, from both parties to implement the um, recommendations in that report. But you know, the process is drawing out, and the recommendations were relatively straightforward. And this mm. is a this is going to be a tricky area because the way we do politics in this country is a tiny bit poisonous um, and it's certainly got a deep level of misogyny buried into it. Why are we not hearing either of the major parties talking about violence against women in any detail? Political pros will tell you that during a five-week campaign, and admittedly this is a six-week campaign, God, it's going forever, isn't it? <laughs> during, a five, during a standard five-week federal election campaign, You've got the opportunity to communicate to voters one or maybe two ideas. And if you can actually cut through with one or two ideas to electors in five weeks, you're doing well. One of the, one of the interesting things that, in fact, is an, is an advantage to the coalition in this campaign is that there's a, a dozen really critically important issues of which that is one. And the problem is if you try and jungle Jim your way across all the critical dozen issues, you don't manage to get through, to cut through and communicate that one or maybe two key ideas that could swing centrist voters your way. So I, I think there are many people who feel, you know, as deeply as ever on that issue, but for strategic reasons in order to win the election. And, and that's the only way you're going to get better policy in that area for sure is mm. to stick with the key messaging and try and get through to voters just with those one or two big ideas. Please show me, please show me a party that has ever really taken that seriously during an election campaign. 
it's deeply complex. Uh, yeah, but, but when we've had a when we've had a hundred thousand plus women marching, particularly on this issue, why wouldn't they be saying, you know, we're hearing you? Th- this is a time to say, look, we're hearing you. We've heard you. This is an issue. Um, we know it resonates across the nation. Well, I think Labor and the Teal candidates have all done that repeatedly over the last year and a half. And I just draw your attention to the previous US presidential election where a man won the presidency with multiple rape allegations outstanding against him. And he benefited from the votes of many, many women. One of the reasons that this is not the decisive issue some of us might might like and hope it is, is that there are many reasons why people vote. And the number one reason is Am I going to survive economically between now and the next election? Who's going to get me across the economic valley of death most effectively? And then beyond that, they'll consider other issues. But if you think of all those women who voted Trump, all knew he was an alleged rapist. You know, many of them that would have experienced domestic violence and other kinds of sexual violence themselves, they still voted mm-hmm. Trump. So mm-hmm. it's where issues fit in the kind of killer hierarchy of vote swinging issues. And, you know, if you want to win an election, You've got to swing those centrist voters. Thank you for, for depressing me in reminding me about that, that, that Trump reality. Well, I actually don't think it's possible for any party to really argue this well during an election campaign. <clears throat> One, it's very complex. Two, it requires um, much greater nuance than we've seen from any politician yet. It's not about introducing consent education. It's not about um, funding frontline services. It's not about... Um, better education campaigns. It's about all of it. And really the big picture is we are not going to get rid of sexual violence or other kinds of violence against women unless we have a complete reshape of of society. Mm. And that is, I don't think we can have that discussion in an election campaign. It's too hard. Okay. Helen, what do you think? Uh, Yeah, I think you're spot on there, Jenna. Um, And I think too, the other thing about an election campaign is that they're not talking to us. They're not talking to women. They're talking to people. And people are men. Um, so, you know, we haven't <laughs> oh, got, right? yeah, yeah, we haven't got a narrative in this country that says that when we talk about women, this is an important issue that everybody should care about. And so anyone in an election is going to say, if we talk about women's issues in an election, then we are not going, we're going to be wasting our election time. Um, we should only talk about things that appeal to the absolute common denominator. And, you know, women's safety apparently is not in that. Um, women's economic security, apparently not in that, despite the fact that if you ensure women's economic security, you ensure a whole family's economic security. Um, so we haven't got the idea in our heads that when you talk about women, you are talking about the well-being of everybody. But the, this this throws back to, as was raised in one of our earlier episodes, I think by um, Catherine Fox, it feels like a very old-fashioned campaign. It feels like we've gone back 15 years or so because we're still fighting or the campaign is still being fought in this sort of old-fashioned formula. I'm wondering, I've been waiting for vision, a sense of vision, a sense of if we're, if we're not getting detail on policy, what is the vision? I don't really get a sense, even um, from Albo, who we've discussed quite a bit, what the big vision is. Well, one of the reasons is there's this thing standing between the leaders and their parties, their front benches, and voters, and it's called the media, Mm -hmm. right? And I can tell you from having observed from the inside quite a bit Mm. over recent decades, you can put out excellent policy as much as you like. Can you get a journo to pick it up and run it? 
And I know the journos have problems themselves because they've got to get it past a chief of staff and an editor who have their own agendas. But in fact, there's some incredible policy out there. I think the childcare policy that Labor is offering is profoundly important and it's really significant and very contemporary that they've linked that to economic productivity rather than cul-de-sacking it as a women's issue, for example. Again, a really crucial bit of policy is the Labor proposal on the new national electricity grid upgrade. Now, as we move to renewables, if you don't fix the grid, you can't actually make this all work. Is it sexy? Do we see the newspaper leading with it? No. Do you know anything about it? No. Would you actually read it if it was in the newspaper? Probably not. Incredibly important policy. So I think we, we make assumptions about what's out there. I think both sides of politics could do a whole lot better in making these things visible online. I don't, They kind of barely even try. Um, but... Mm. It's not fair to say there aren't policies. Well, that's a very good point and a very fair point too. Um, Jenna and Chris, particularly because you're journalists and although both um, thriving academics these days but both still work as journalists, I, I've got, and as a journalist myself, I've got to say, and having covered many, many, many election campaigns, I look at the coverage at the moment, or the, certainly the behaviour of journalists, particularly those travelling with the leaders, and I've got to say I am really disappointed and at times appalled, shocked and appalled. How are you reading it in terms of the, the work of the uh, the journalists who are on the beat? Look, there's, there's, some, good, there's some good, there's some bad. Um, 100% I, agree with Chris. You, you, we can't that. slur the entire media. No, it would be I just know, completely but wrong. But there are, look, there have been to some me, shocking major, moments, really. A major disappointment was the first week of the campaign where Albanese made a dumb slip followed by the Prime Minister making at least two, if not three, dumb slips, and they were covered completely asymmetrically. Now, that's just wrong. We, we've each probably got a personal list of half a dozen things that could have been done way better or journalists were a bit disappointed in. Uh, one particularly comes to mind. But, you know, it's always a mix with the media. What we need is governments who engage on policy rather than keep it down at the football reporting level mm-hmm. and the government benefits from keeping it down at that level. It's not always the case. You'd recall from the Hawke-Keating era, the governments were like an ongoing rolling policy seminar, educating journalists and encouraging them to learn about policy, write about policy. This government is not like that and it's never going to be like that because it likes to keep things at a very low common denominator uh, reportage-wise. But you know what? Reporters don't have to cooperate with it. Mm. Reporters can do better. Well, yes, and and look, fair point. I mean, we certainly can't. Um, I, I can't. I certainly don't mean to sledge all media, but I have been really shocked at, at some. Uh, we're going to have to finish, but before I do, I just want a quick whip, whip around all three of you, and I do this at the end of each episode. It's a bit bold, but can you call it at this stage in the campaign? So we're over halfway through. What are we looking at? Do you have a sense of what is going to happen and are you optimistic? So um, I'm going to start with you first, Helen. Absolutely can't. Totally cannot call it. Um, and I can't tell, you know, whether that's because of the um, the surprise last last time or whether that's uh, – it just feels like things are moving too fast. Um, you know, we had a week where Albanese was um, off with COVID and his approval rates went up. You know, this is – 
impossible to be able to say what's happening at the moment. I don't have a sense. Okay. All right. Jenna, what do you think? I think Labor's going to win. Um, but, you know, I thought that last, last time. I do think that we see more and more instances of the audience getting the shits with with Morrison, really pushing back against his inaction or his his inability to wrangle his own coalition on, for instance, climate change or on the Federal Integrity Commission. Is is Albanese and Labor going to be convincing? I think that's how it's going to play out, but I also think it's quite possible we are going to have a hung parliament with some extremely powerful teal people. Okay, fascinating, Chris, in a nutshell. Well, as at today, I would predict a modest Labor win as the most likely outcome with a hung parliament, the next most likely. I think it's very unlikely the Morrison government would be re-elected with its own majority, given how much it struggled last time and it really doesn't have an effective majority now. But folks, don't forget the coalition. It's going to be absolutely gripping to see what happens if the coalition does have a clear loss. And, you know, think about it. If Josh Frydenberg is beaten by Dr Monique Ryan, Mm. that means Mm. Peter Dutton would likely be opposition leader. Now, that's a... A thought. Stunning prospect, isn't it, <laughs> folks? I mean, um, yes, I, if only I could just re- explain to listeners how you all look on on screen now as I float that possibility. But it's a very real possibility because the current policy, policy, polling shows Monique Ryan is in with a red-hot chance. Oh, and what, what a development that would be in Australian national life, a sitting treasurer offed by a paediatric neurologist Go paediatric neurologists. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, look, thank you all so much. We've got a way to go, a few weeks to go. Um, The 21st of May will come around probably very quickly. But thank you all so much. I've actually learned a lot and thought a lot. Um, You are all amazing at that. You all make me rethink often. So thank you. I've really enjoyed this discussion. And I want to thank you for listening. We have a, a couple of little important announcements. I'm actually heading off um, overseas. I'm heading off on an aid development uh, delegation to the Pacific and won't be around next week. So the fabulous Yasmin Poole is going to be the host for episode five next week. So make sure you tune in for that. Uh, That'll be fascinating. And don't forget, please, if you have enjoyed what you've listened to, rate us, review us. If you haven't enjoyed it, please let us know as well. And do uh, reach out to us via our social media uh, networks. Um, Broad Talkers on Insta, we're Broad Talkers. You can send us an email, hello at broadtalk.net. You can jump onto our Facebook group, Broad Talk, and um, we'll invite you into the Broad Talk Roundtable group as well. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we really do love your feedback, every single bit of it. So keep it coming, and don't forget, keep talking. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 